Let's pray. Father, thank you for your uh, church. Father, we thank you for this building. We thank you for the, the HVAC unit that keeps us warm in the winter and cool in the summer. We thank you for uh, your mercy to us in Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray and ask for wisdom that we would be uh, strengthened, encouraged, and um, by your word, Lord, that we might lead lives that are uh, faithful and glorify you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So hopefully you picked up a handout on the way in. If you didn't, I have a few. Did you pick up a handout? Anybody need one? Good. Okay. Looking good. Well, we're going to do a a Sunday school class on the minor prophets. I want to take one minor prophet a week and blaze through it. Uh, Just to give an overview of the book and themes and really set it in its historical setting so we can come to understand these um, books better. They're not books that we often, that we spend too much time in. Um, At least I don't. Um, Some of you may have uh, an interest in the minor prophets that uh, I don't know about, but um, I, I generally think we, in the major prophets, we do spend time in. We read Daniel and Isaiah and Ezekiel, Jeremiah with uh, a certain amount of, of interest. But then the minor prophets just seem a little bit difficult for us, hard to understand. And um, I wonder why we think they are hard to understand. And, and a few things that came to mind are we don't... we we often don't do the work of trying to put them in their their historical context and then read about that historical context. Why was the prophet saying what he was saying and why was he doing what he was doing? And then there's the, the prophetic idiom, right? The way the prophets speak is very difficult because Sometimes they're speaking about contemporary events, sometimes they're speaking about events that are coming in the future, and sometimes they're speaking about the last days and the coming of Jesus. And so it's hard to know when they're talking about what or if they're talking about both. You know, it's just very hard to understand the prophetic idiom. Um, the, the prophets were God's, think, of, think about this. What is a prophet? Prophets were God's representatives to the people. Okay, very simple definition. God's representatives to the people. God sent prophets. Those prophets did what? They represented God and spoke God's word to the people. Priests, on the other hand, were what? Priests were not that. Priests were the people's representatives to God. Right? So... They would, um, they would intercede on behalf of the people and um, offer sacrifices to God. The prophets were, were um, speaking from God. 
And they, they often speak as if their prophecies are imminent when they are, in fact, going to occur. I mean, they speak in the present tense about things that might occur years in advance or decades or centuries in advance. Um, then there's, inside of that prophetic idiom, there's what's called prophetic telescoping where the prophet like, puts next to one another events without any indication of a time interval between those two events, right? Is, is, is he speaking of the first advent? Is he speaking of the second advent? Hard to know, hard to figure out. Um, and it's usually both. <clears throat> they use a lot of symbolic language. Symbolic language is difficult for us to figure out, especially 21st century moderns who only speak in sort of scientifically precise language. We don't get symbols, we don't get symbolic language as readily, I think, as our forefathers did. And then we read through the minor prophets and the major prophets, and we're like, where's the grace, man? You know, like, where's the grace? Um, it, it seems that God is angry at his children through the, all the prophetic announcements. He is, he is disciplining them for their apostasy and their idolatry and their harlotry. And the prophets are announcing that the judgment is coming and it's going to come through these swords, the, the Babylonians and the Assyrians and, and, uh, and the Persians, right? And so they, they're... And yet there are rays of sunshine throughout the minor prophets. There are many prophecies of Jesus Christ and his coming and uh, the coming of the Messiah. And so it's not merely about discipline and judgment. Um, it's about restoration and uh, rebuilding many of these books. And so... Uh, fundamentally, I think what the prophets are doing, and the minor prophets especially, is they are communicating the sanctions of the covenant. What are the sanctions of the covenant? It's very simple. Blessings for obedience, cursings for disobedience. That's what they do. And, um, and of course, the people were a people who honored the Lord with their lips, but their hearts were far from Him. And the prophets come and rub their noses in that fact. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Now, think of, um, think of Jesus and what He says here in Luke 13. Just at that time, some Pharisees approached, saying to him, Go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I, Jesus says, wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not have it. 
Behold, your house is left to you desolate, and I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So the last prophet comes, the last and greatest prophet comes and says, you've killed all of the prophets. This is how you received the word of God. Your forefathers all killed the prophets. And so, uh, was the word of the prophets um, received well? No, it was not. Did it lead to repentance? Maybe temporary but not, um, not fully. And God, the Son, the final prophet, comes and tells them that, um, that they will be left desolate. So, looking at this sheet, the minor prophets are active between about 850 and 435 B.C. That's the range of dates. What you might not understand is that the major and minor prophets overlap with one another. There's not chronological, the, the books are not chronological, okay? The major prophets precede the minor prophets, and then the minor prophets are not really in historical order um, either. And so, um, if you look at this, you, Obadiah, Joel, Jonah, Amos, Hosea, Micah, all fall before Isaiah, right? And so we, we, we have a tendency to think that there were the major prophets and then came the minor prophets, but these prophets are speaking, overlapping uh, during this time. Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel were all sort of after, after Babylon rises up. And so keep that in mind too. So we got to place these things historically. Um few other random points on the minor prophets before we get into Obadiah. Priest had to be from the tribe of Levi, right? We all know that. Priest had to be from the tribe of Levi and the family of Aaron. Kings had to be from David's line, right, at least in Judah. But prophets could come from any tribe and any occupation. God rose up these prophets that were not part of a, a, a normal line or a line that was required, okay? They could come from any tribe, any occupation. Nonetheless, they received a direct call from God and were commissioned from God. So this was not voluntary service. You did not get to announce yourself a prophet. You had to have the call from God and the commission from God. I mean, similarly, you can't, uh, you, you can't, well, you, you could in American uh, church um, stand up and proclaim yourself the pastor of the church, but we don't, we don't operate that way. You have to have a call and you have to have a commission. The commission comes from those who have already been called and commissioned in the office, and then there's ordination that follows follows that. And so, um, but, but this was not voluntary service. This was not, you know, does anybody have a prophecy today? And the prophet raised up his hand and said, yeah, I think I've got a prophecy today. No. Um, God, was, God was speaking directly with these prophets. God speaks to the prophet, then the prophet delivers that 
and only that message, that's what he delivers. He does not get to make up his prophecy. He does not get to um, write uh, a reflection on what God said. He delivers what God gives to him. It was God's word delivered to the people by means of the prophet. They didn't only preach, though. They preached and they performed symbolic actions. And that's where we're kind of like, whoa, um, you know, Ezekiel lying on his side for a long time, right? Um, Jeremiah and, the, and the, the belt, right? I mean, there, we could give all kinds of examples. They were supposed to do these symbolic actions, but only the ones that God told them to do, right? Um, and so they preached against specific sins. They called for repentance primarily, and they called for conformance to God's covenant demands, and they performed these symbolic actions to teach the people about what their unrepentance and what their sin would lead to. They interceded for the people. They were watchmen for the people as well. They prophesied about Jesus Christ. And some of the prophets were sent to the Gentiles, not simply to Israel. Uh, some to Judah, some to Israel, some to Gentiles. God raised up prophets to the Gentiles. So that's my random facts. Any questions about that or comments or helpful things that you think I've missed about the work of the prophets? That's a way too brief overview, but we have to get to Obadiah. Yeah, go. Prophetesses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. They, they were different. They were different. And the judges were more of a kingly role and a and a and they led in a in a kingly sense. They preceded the kings, right? And so I would I would line them more with the that governmental aspect than I would the prophetic office. Well, um, I believe so, right? Because don't we have the example of Ezra um, explaining the word. They read the word and they explained the word. So we have that in the book of Ezra. So the priests had a teaching office and, uh, and an explication of the word of God or an explication of the law of God. But um, the prophets were raised up for this, to address specific, specific historical and sin issues at the time. All right, so let's, anything else? Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. 
I thought about looking into that. I don't know. I don't have the answer right off the top of my head. Um, I, I can get an answer for you, though, for next time. Yep. Yep. All right. So let's go to Obadiah. Open your Bibles to Obadiah. We'll have a contest so you can find it first. No indexes. Everybody's singing the song. Yeah, you you have the tabs. That you don't win. Now there's some contention about whether this is the the oldest of the prophets, the minor prophets. Because Obadiah is a prophecy against Edom and it would fit in very much later. It could be one of the later books when um, Babylon conquers Jerusalem. But I think, um, I'm pretty convinced that this relates to an earlier attack upon Jerusalem made by the Edomites um, back in 848. And so, um, so that's why we went to this one first. But you should know there is some disagreement about whether or not this this book is the oldest. Now, um, where what is the setting? It's Judah, right? What's Judah? Judah is the southern kingdom, right? Judah is where Jerusalem is, right? And then there's the northern kingdom. Uh, this book is addressed, it appears, to Judah because in verse 12 it says, Do not gloat over your brother's day, the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Right, And then down at 17, But on Mount Zion there will be those who escape and it will be holy and the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. Okay, So it seems that this is taking place in Jerusalem and Judah. And the, the historical context is this. There's national disaster in Jerusalem. They're being attacked. Jerusalem is getting attacked by a coalition of people who hate them. Okay? And it's a calamity. Jerusalem, of all places, being attacked. And... Um, And if you notice, in the very first verse, it says the vision of Obadiah. Does anybody know what Obadiah means? Yeah, servant of Yahweh. So um, whenever you have uh, A-H at the end, it usually means Yah, and that's short for Yahweh. So, So we could say slave of God is what Obadiah means. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord concerning Edom. Who's, what's Edom? What is Edom? It literally means red. Red, like Ohio State, right? What is Edom? It means red. And these are the descendants of Esau who refused passage to 
um, Israel during the Exodus. We could go back to to uh, Numbers uh, twenty. Numbers twenty. Um, is that where it is? Yeah, Numbers 20, 21, Thus Edom refused to allow Israel to pass through his territory, so Israel turned away from him, and they set out from Kadesh. The sons of Israel, the whole congregation, came to Mount Hor. Right, and Edom already was fighting against Israel back in that time during the wilderness wanderings, right? But even before that, we could go back, and you remember in Genesis 27, Already back, this is ancient history now, right? Genesis 27 at 42, um, Jacob and Esau and the whole, you know, blessing and uh, by Israel and the stolen blessing, you know, you remember all of that? Um, Genesis 27:42. Now, when the words of her elder son Esau were reported to Rebekah, she sent and called her younger son Jacob and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau is consoling himself concerning you by planning to kill you. That's the Edomites. That's where the Edomites' hatred toward Israel begins, way back with the Jacob and Esau incident. Brother of, of Jacob. Right, and so all the way back there, um, these this animosity is rising up. Now, Edom was not a large threat to Israel, but there were other threats to Israel that Edom just liked to say, "Ah, we'll go along with you. Any chance we can get to take a stick to Israel, to Judah." We're going to do it. And so they would come along with other people, other people groups, and, uh, and fight against Israel. And that's what seems to have happened here. They've risen up and they are uh, fighting against their long, old enemy, Jacob. Okay? Now, um, more historical context. Um, Elijah dies in 1840 or <laughs> 849. Not that, not that far back. 849 BC. Jehoram is king during this time in 849, 848. And we can go to Second Chronicles 21. And so Jehoram succeeds Jehoshaphat, and um, let's see, he was 32 years old when he became king. This is all in Second Chronicles 21, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. He walked in the way of the kings of Israel, just as the house of Ahab did, for Ahab's daughter was his wife. So Jezebel's daughter was Jehoram's wife, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord, yet the Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant which he made with David and since he had promised to give a lamp to him and his sons forever. And then it says this, In his days Edom revolted against the rule of Judah and set up a king over themselves. 
Then Jehoram crossed over with his commanders and all his chariots with them, and he rose by night and struck down the Edomites who were surrounding him and his commanders. So Edom revolted against Judah to this day. Right? So we can, I think this is the revolt and the attack that the Edomites are speaking of or is happening when Obadiah is is um, introduced as a prophet and commissioned by the Lord to deliver this message to Israel. And so let's listen to Obadiah now. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord and an envoy has been sent among the nations saying, Arise and let us go against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to earth? Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves come to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be ruined. Would they not steal only until they had enough? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave some gleanings? Oh, how Esau will be ransacked and his hidden treasures searched out. All the men allied with you will send you forth to the border and the men at peace with you will deceive you and overpower you. They who eat your bread will set an ambush for you. There is no understanding in him. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountain of Esau? Then your mighty men will be dismayed, O Teman, so that everyone may be cut off from the mountain of Esau by slaughter. Because of violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you too were as one of them. Do not gloat over your brother's day, the day of his misfortune. And do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Yes, do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their disaster. Yes, you do not gloat over their calamity in the day of their disaster. And do not loot their wealth in the day of their disaster. Do not stand at the fork of the road to cut down their fugitives. And do not imprison their survivors in the day of their distress. For the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head, because just as you drank on my holy mountain, all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow and become as if they had never existed. But on Mount Zion, there will be those who escape, and it will be holy, and the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. Then the house of Jacob will be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, but the house of Esau will be as stubble. And they will set them on fire and consume them, so that there will be no survivor of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Then those of the Negev will possess the mountain of Esau, and those of the Cephalah, the Philistine plain, also possess the territory of Ephraim and the territory of Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. 
and the exiles of his host of the sons of Israel who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the cities of the Negev. The deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. All right, so just having some of that history in mind helps us to come to a better understanding of the book just in an immediate reading, right? Does that help? It helped me. Um, if you just, you're doing your Bible reading, you know, through the Bible in a year and you come across these things, it's like, okay, I have no clue who's what and who's fighting whom and what's up and what's down. But if we do just a little bit of that background, it helps us to place what's going on. Now, what, do you, what, is, what would you take away from this as a theme verse? If you had to go to one verse in this, you just heard it, so you may not have the whole thing in mind, but maybe it stuck out to you. What would be the theme verse? Or what, what concept do you think is at the, the core of this prophecy? Yes. Yes, 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 yes. As you have done, it will be done to you. Edom, as you have attacked Jerusalem and God's people, it will be done to you. What goes around comes around, right? This is the lex talionis, the law of retaliation, an eye for an eye right? Um, what you have done will be done to you. Now, what had been done? Well, it's interesting how the book is laid out here because it begins with the prophecies against Edom and then it tells us what had happened. So verse 11 to 12 on the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you too were as one of them. So they, they, had, um, they had committed treachery against Judah, right? They, they had conspired together with others and they had committed treachery and then they had robbed. Verse 13, do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their slaughter. Do not gloat over their calamity in the day of their disaster. Do not loot their wealth. And apparently this had happened, right? They came in, they, plund, they, they attacked Jerusalem, they, they had their confederates, they, they had a you know, confederated army together. They came in, they took, uh, they, they stole, they robbed, they committed violence, right? We read about that in, in verse 11 as well. Um, and they, um, they really wanted Judah to be destroyed. They sought the destruction of Judah. And they sought to dispossess Judah. Do not stand at the fork of the road to cut down their fugitives and do not imprison their survivors, right? They wanted, they wanted to come in, not only um, uh, kill a few, steal some, but they wanted to dispossess and destroy Judah. Now, the punishment fits the crime. The punishment that came fits the crimes that they committed. We can go back to verse 7. 
And we learn in this section what's going to happen to Edom because of what they did to Jerusalem and to to Judah. So verse 7 says, All the men allied with you will send you forth to the border, and the men at peace with you will deceive you and overpower you. They who eat your bread will set an ambush for you. So Edom committed treachery by having confederates together. And then those, those three, four, five groups are going to take a stick to Edom. So just as you came against Edom, so these ones you aligned yourself with are going to come against you. So they're going to be, um, they're also going to be robbed, five and six. If thieves come to you, if robbers of the night, oh, how will you, oh, how you will be ruined. Would they not steal until they had enough? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave some gleanings? Oh, how Esau will be ransacked and his hidden treasures searched out. So as they robbed, they will be robbed. Verse 9, the violence. Then your mighty men will be dismayed, O Taman, so that and Taman is, is, the, um, is one of the cities of, of Edom, so that everyone may be cut off from the mountain of Esau by slaughter. Right? You committed violence against Israel, you will be slaughtered. You will die. They sought Judah's destruction. Verse 10 and 18 make it clear that Edom is going to be destroyed. Because of violence to your brother, Jacob, you will be covered with shame, and you will be cut off forever. And then jump down to 18. Then the house of Jacob will be a fire, house of Joseph a flame, but the house of Esau, stubble, destroyed. Destroyed. They will set them on fire and consume them so that there will be no survivor of the house of Esau. And then they will be, they sought to dispossess Judah, and yet Edom will be dispossessed, 19. Then those of the Negev will possess the mountain of Esau, and those of the Cephalah, the Philistine plain, also possess the territory of Ephraim and the territory of Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. So bye-bye, Esau. Your land is going to be possessed. And so... um, that, again, we can't, we can't get into all the nitty-gritty details of this. I just want, while we go through these, these um, minor prophets, to give you some setting, to give you some, some place, to give you a theme. And then if you're more interested in working out all the details and setting it more in the historical context, then go for it. But I do want to come up with some some application of this. So we've seen the southern kingdom attacked by Edom. Jacob is being attacked by Esau hundreds, hundreds of years after um, Jacob and Esau. Um, What do we take away from this? What you know, all Scripture is profitable for correction, for proof, training, and righteousness that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. How does Obadiah equip us today? Will, go for it. Take a stab.
Mm-hmm. They've, they've, been, they've been warring for a millennia. Mm-hmm. The, Moabites, the Moabites get more of the wrath of Israel than the Edomites. I mean, the, it's clear that Jerusalem and Judah ruled over the Edomites, but the Edomites set up their own king. That's what provoked this conflict, right? They rejected the rule of Jerusalem. And that was part of their rebellion. So it seems like there was some sort of understanding, at least for a while. But, but yeah, they, they fought. They, they fought for a thousand years. Yeah, let's rephrase that. Let's say if you mess with the church, God will remember. That's, that's one of the things that I take away from this. If you mess with the church, God will remember. God set his affections upon his people, right? His old, old covenant people, the new covenant people, right? The church, the church. I don't want to say Israel because then we'll become Zionists and we'll talk about how Israel now is God's people. And I don't, that need not be said, okay? Um, we're covenant theologians here. So that's why I wanted to say church, right? God's people through the ages, um, believing Israelites. And so... Yeah, but, but, the, but the main point is God sees and knows when his children are suffering, especially, especially his church. He sees and knows. Okay, so we can take comfort from that. And vengeance is his. He will repay. Right? There's a sense in which this book should cause us delight in the vengeance of God. It shouldn't provoke us to take vengeance, but it should make us delight in the coming vengeance of God against all his and our enemies, right? That, sh- that is something that we have a tendency not to think about, but we have to discipline ourselves to take delight in, in one, waiting, not taking vengeance in our own, but waiting for God's vengeance and looking forward to it. Looking forward to God taking out all of his enemies. That should be a, a delight. So, Yes, well, that's that's good. One thing. What else? Yeah, Sarah. And then he takes wives that aren't, you know, that aren't good, right? He, he reacts in bitterness. He's angry. He wants to kill. It's interesting that Jacob and Esau, when they do meet after all of this goes down, and he, there is God brokered a peace by his spirit in that because I think Esau was still angry and probably harbored this bitterness till he died, Right? But 
And, and as an example, if we went and looked in Hebrews of just bitterness of heart. And so, um, but that, that strange piece where Jacob is doing all he can, like giving him gifts and like separating the groups so that, you know, there's like, you know, it, he was very scared as he ought to have been. And for some reason, there wasn't a skirmish there, but by God's grace. But that doesn't, usually the children of, of fathers are more extreme than the fathers. And so the students of teachers who are extreme become even more extremist, right? And so the children of Esau probably were ready to fight, and the grandchildren of Esau even more so. Having forgotten what the original problem was, they just hated those people, hated those, those Jacobites, you know? Okay, good, helpful. So the, the application of that is... Um, present actions have future consequences. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that's helpful. You know, do not gloat over their calamity. God, the prophet is telling Edom, don't gloat over their calamity, the calamity of Jacob. And um, I, I think there are a lot of um, there are a lot of discernment bloggers who delight over the fall of of Christian um, ministers, um, Christian ministries. Right, and just take delight in gloating and publishing, and you know, now public sin should be dealt with publicly. I'm not, don't hear what I'm not saying, but there's a there's a way that people gloat in it and delight in it when it's actually rather tragic and awful, you know. Yes. Yes. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, don't feel sorry for Esau. Just think about that. Think about think about the sins of the fathers being visited on the children. You know? And this is, this is generation after generation, generation of Edom being disciplined by the Lord for the sin of their father. Yeah, so the, the sovereign plan of God in this is, is very, very clearly written. Yeah, last comment, we got to stop. Uh, that's what I don't know. That's what I don't know. I would say it was probably fairly contemporary to that. I mean, I think Jehoram probably came along and put Edom in their place. Whether or not he wiped them off the map, I don't know.
Yeah, it could be. Again, it's that prophetic idiom. I'm sure there was a, a short-term fulfillment of this and then a long-term fulfillment. And so um, it, it, that doesn't mean that that first one was not a fulfillment. It's just there's a longer term, yeah. Yes. Yeah, that definitely is that uh, that telescoping. That's looking forward to to what's coming. Yep. Yep, for sure. All right, we got to stop. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you care for your church. That you are protecting her and all all the enemies of the church will one day fall under your um, wrath and there will be no one left to um, molest your church and your people. And Father, we pray that um, we would rejoice in this, that we would take comfort in it, that we would be warned um, by Israel's example of apostasy not to apostatize. And Father, that, you, that we would truly fear you. Lord, we ask that you would uh, be with us as we worship you. Pray that you would bless Mikhail as he preaches, that he would, um, that your spirit would be working through him to feed us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.